Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 17th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The closure of uh, the emergency department in Navan is imminent. The decision to replace the emergency department with a medical assessment unit was to be implemented on the 31st of June, but as you know, that decision was paused because of a concern that closing the emergency department in Navan would create problems elsewhere, particularly in Drogheda. A review is now underway, and this week we learned that it is not a question of if, it is a question of how the emergency department will be closed in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan safely and without compromising patient care elsewhere. The terms of reference agreed by the Government, the Minister for Health, the Department of Health and the HSE make it clear that closing the emergency department is planned and this review is aimed at providing assurance to people that it is safe to do this. Let's uh, speak uh, to independent councillor Nick Killian who's uh, the chair of Meath County Council. A very good morning to you Nick and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You received uh, these terms of reference yesterday yourself uh, is that how you read them? That's how I read them, Michael. Um, very much you, you've outlined what's actually in the document. I think when we read section two, if I may, it's, it sets out the purpose of the review and it states very clearly the purpose of the process is to review and assess the reconfiguration plan for a ladies' hospital in Navan and to ensure necessary actions to address the impact of the reconfiguration on other services are identified when having regard to the underlying existing patient safety risks at Navan. That word reconfigure uh, is throughout the document and, you know, to reconfigure, um, the dictionary tells us, is to do something in an altered form, mm. to figure or to shape the layout. So it's very much... Um, 
Well, it means the closure of uh, the emergency department uh, because uh, it's reconfiguring from a Model 3 to a Model 2 hospital, and that's the HSE language for closure. So if you read exactly that sentence again, that paragraph uh, again, uh, and change refiguration for closure, it says the purpose of the process is to review and assess the closure of the emergency department in Navan and to do whatever needs to be done to make sure that when we close the emergency department in Navan, that uh, we'll have regard for patient safety in Navan and whatever impact it might have on Drogheda. And, you know, the objectives are, you know, similar. You know, a rapid review to access the reconfiguration in the very first sentence. Um, then recommendation of any additional capacity needed in advance of the transition of any activity from our ladies' hospital. Mm. So it's very much setting out... Yeah. Uh, you know, a scheme of closure of the A&E section of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. A rapid review to assess the reconfiguration, as you say. Uh, Read that another way. Uh, A rapid review to assess the closure of the emergency department in Navan. Yeah, I mean, we we can uh, think what we'd like. Um, The HSE have made their mind up. And if we go to number four uh, in the terms of reference, I think when fun looks, and I'm sure you have done so yourself, Michael, mm. when you look at the actual structure of the membership, it's a HSE orientated review structure. So they're looking at themselves. There's not one person from outside the HSE. They're all HSE employees. Every single one of them, in some shape or form, uh, are, you know, probably the only... Um, when I look at, the, at, at who's on it... Um, who's not employed by the HSE. So even the people at County Meath have been totally ignored. Once again, we have been ignored in this. And again, now it does say at the very last sentence, other members will be added as deemed necessary and approved through the chief operation officers and chief clinical officers. So who's going to make that decision? And I believe that there should be somebody uh, from within the county on that. I, I think there's 17 members uh, and two members are, are not directly employed by the HSE. I think uh, two GPs uh, who uh, are on uh, the team that will be carrying out uh, this review. Uh, but it is predominantly a HSE team, uh, as you say. And as it says at the beginning of this document, the background to this goes back to 2013 and uh, the future of uh, the smaller hospitals, a framework for development document that was published then uh, and a, a list of hospitals hospitals uh, were to go to Model 2, in other words not to have emergency yeah. departments Our Ladies Hospital in Navan was one of them as I say, that was the report that was published in 2013 yeah. uh, and that's the driving force for all of this, uh, but going back to the membership of uh, this review team, uh, one of uh, the members is Dr. Seamus McMenamin, who is the chair of NE Doc and a GP representative uh, on on the team for the out of hours. Uh, And um, he spoke to LMFM recently, uh, and it's interesting to hear what he had to say about the context of this, remembering that this was first uh, muted back in 2013. The population of Meath has changed. You know, uh, we've had an explosion and you just have to look around any urban area in Meath and you've got new houses springing up. So the reality is that that decision was made at a very different time. Um, and when you actually look at it, the if you accept the, the fact that a number of cuts have already made to the hospital, so the situation where the emergency department was, has been already partially downgraded 
and they just want to go with the final step. So if you accept the premise that the choice is the status quo or reconfiguration, um, then you know you would probably reach a certain conclusion. But the reality is, if the politicians decide to change the policy, if the Department of Health changes the policy and invests in Navin, we can't have an emergency department. You know, I've worked in NACE emergency department where it would be very similar uh, to Navin and had close links with Tala. And it shows that in, a, in an area with a similar population base, an emergency department can function very well. So I think um, I don't accept the premise that the only two options are the status quo or reconfiguration. I don't believe if you look at the areas where they have been reconfigured, if you ask people in Monaghan, if you go down to Limerick and look at the way the, the people in trolleys there, have their lives been made better by this? And the answer is no, because the promissory additional capacity in Drogheda and other hospitals surrounding those reconfigured hospitals never happened and didn't happen the way it, it, it does on paper. So I think the, the, the reality on the ground is that this is very unlikely to achieve the outcomes that were promised in the, the report. And I think the, the nature of the demographics has changed so much that it's very unlikely that um, patients' lives will be improved by this decision. But I agree that staying as we are won't work. We'll have to invest in the emergency department and make it back into the way it was before this process started. OK, that's uh, Dr Seamus McManaman, who's uh, the chair of an EDOC, speaking at a, a recent Save Navin Hospital meeting. Uh, uh, the chair of uh, Mead County Council, Nikhil, on the line with us and he's saying that report in 2013 is out of date predominantly because of the population boom and what we've learned from the reconfiguration of other hospitals so that may give you hope that he's on this national working group uh, there's another GP on the group uh, who obviously uh, would be independent as such and uh, not uh, on the HSE payroll, and that's uh, Dr. Catherine Wan, but we know that Dr. Wan uh, is very much in favour favour of uh, the closure of uh, the emergency department. Uh, there is one other person uh, on uh, this uh, list of 17 members, and that's uh, Dr. Ian Coonan, who's the clinical director at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, uh, and he was one of uh, the doctors in Drogheda who, who signed that now infamous letter uh, objecting to patients being brought to Drogheda from Navin. Well, well, that's good to hear uh, that that particular uh, consultant is where taking the position that it, that you have outlined. Um, but if you look at the overall context of the membership, we still have uh, a, a complete um, uh, overflow of people from within the HSE, and they're going to do what the masters are telling them. So it's not going to be an independent review uh, in in as we would know what an independent mm. review should look like, Michael. Mm. Uh, well, you heard uh, Seamus McMenamin uh, there speaking a moment ago and saying uh, you can't uh, continue with uh, the status quo, uh, but that doesn't mean that the only solution is reconfiguration. There is uh, another option, which is to invest in it, and that's the one he favours. Well, well, I mean, that's what we've been calling for within the county, to reinvest in Navin Hospital. And again, going back, you know, but you have mentioned it many times. Uh, I have mentioned it. All the politicians have mentioned it is the increase in population. We're, n- we're now, you know, approaching 220,000 people living in County Mead with thousands of houses yet to be uh, built within the county. Mm. So within the next five years, our population is going to probably go up by, by another 20,000, 30,000. So where would we be then if if the closure has happened in the meantime? Um, look, 
we're, we are where we are. The report has been the we've looked for the terms of reference, and uh, even though they were given to us in a in a very roundabout manner, um, I, I got my copy through uh, Meath County Council, as did all the councillors. Um, I've already written to um, Minister Donnelly Seek in a meeting once again. As chairman of the council, um, I'm going to be calling on the whips of all the parties uh, to meet early next week to discuss this document and to see uh, what we can do politically um, to try and uh, make sure that the minister meets with us. And also, I think we have to be pushing for additional people to be put on that who have a more objective view than possibly some of the people uh, in the membership at the Mm -hmm. present time. Yeah, well, just going back uh, to the options, you can keep the emergency department open, that would be the status quo. You can yep. close it, that would be the reconfiguration, or you can I- invest in uh, the emergency department. Uh, the review is clear, there's only one option out of the three, and that's to close the emergency department. Yeah, I mean, that's that's clear throughout the document. I mean, mm. in, in, in every sentence, the word... You know the reconfiguration is there. Uh, it's in in the objectives. It's it's practically in every section. You know confirmation that clear pathways and sufficient staffing at hospital and primary care level are in place to ensure that there's no diminution of services. That's the only sentence that kind of gave me any hope uh, in the objectives. This to include uh, GP out of our service and medical assessment unit. Mm. So they've already put in the medical assessment unit into the objectives. So again, that indicates closure as well. Okay. Um, I don't think they've published this document the necessary yet. Referral. Sorry, Michael. I say I don't think they've published the document yet. Have they not? Well, no, not that, um, not that I can see anywhere. I mean, I've looked on the Department of Health's website and the government's website. I, I can't see the document published anywhere. And uh, it's got to a stage where uh, the press people who are paid to communicate with the press don't seem to want to communicate with LMFM. So we haven't bothered asking. But as far as I can see, uh, which should be a fairly straightforward uh, process, I, I can't see it published anywhere. Well, one thing that's in it, I'm sure you probably know, is mm. Katrina Meehan from the communications division. It's on the membership team. It's on the membership team. So maybe you'll have yeah. to open mm. up a strong dialogue I, with Katrina. I think what we'll do now is we'll, we'll, we'll do the HSE a favour. We'll publish it. We'll publish it uh, on yeah. uh, the LMFM sites today. Uh, but uh, there is this other question, <laughs> which is really remarkable. When did they start doing this work? Uh, it says uh, uh, on the terms of reference that it was established in July. Uh, Thomas Byrne was telling us, the minister was telling us on the programme yesterday, uh, as he understands it, uh, the work is going to start next week or this week, uh, sometime in August at least, certainly not in July. Well, it comes back to what I've been saying all along, Michael, who's in control of this? Is it the minister? Is it the uh, Department of Health? Or is it um, people within the HSE? We simply still don't know. I know this has been published by the HSE, um, but the Minister is certainly not in charge of this process. He may have been given indications to do this, that and the other, but he's not in charge. And that's why we want to meet him um, on behalf of the people of County Meath, yeah. right across all the political parties. Um, and I'm going to be calling to, to meet with my colleagues yeah. next, early next week to try and do that. I'd have to question that statement uh, because uh, I think the Minister would have had to have agreed these terms of reference and the Minister certainly paused the decision uh, to close it uh, and then called for this review. Uh, so I think... Uh, the minister can answer for himself. But I think uh, it's probably too simple to say he's not in charge. But 
he has not come out and made a statement. And that's what worries mm. uh, politicians that, you know, a senior government minister who is the Minister for Health, who has the ultimate responsibility for the health of all the people of this country, including the people of County Mead, still has not come out and said, what is he hiding behind? There has to be, there's something there that's not fitting into all of this. I don't know what it is. But why can't the minister come out and just sit down and be honest and open and say, look, lads, this is, lads and lassies, this is how it is. This is what's going to happen. Um, and this is why it's going to happen. And this is why it's going to happen. Yeah, treat people now, like grown-ups, in other words. Yeah, exactly. And a mm-hmm. bit of common sense thrown into it at the same time. And if this is going to be a very, I mean, it says a rapid review. Um, a rapid review, what does that mean? A week, four weeks, three months? We don't know. I don't know. I know I know. a couple of weeks ago, um, Minister McEntee said it would be eight weeks. Uh, uh, and uh, I don't know, I think the work is supposed to have begun on the 25th of July. She was talking about it being concluded in September and a decision to be made in and around the time that the doll resumes, in and around the time that the budget is announced. That's only, that's only three weeks away, four weeks away at max. I mean, the, the budget, we're going to have an early budget this year. The dollars reconvening mm. in the middle of September. Who'll care about Navin then? Yes, exactly, because the focus will, will have drifted away. But the people of Mead will still be here and will still want their uh, A&E unit to be left in Navin, irrespective uh, even of this term's references. That's, and we have to keep fighting. That's all we can do and give it every possible opportunity to get our point of view across. But this terms of reference and the review committee, we're not going to be able to do that unless we get our own people onto it. When I say our own people, I'm not necessarily talking about politicians. I'm talking about independent people, um, good medical people of independent mind within the county that could be... um, brought on board onto this committee because it appears to me that the um, only way somebody is going to go on is if they get the support of the chief operations officer. Won't, it won't change the terms of reference anyway. Uh, I mean, the review, the objective of the review is to find a, a way of closing the emergency department safely. So it doesn't matter who's on, on the review team. No, well, I disagree, Michael. I, I still think we, we still need uh, people of independent mind who can come along and bring another point of view which could change maybe some of the attitudes of some of the people on the committee. Mm. Uh, we have to keep, I think we have to keep that flame uh, firing and that is to try and achieve what we've set out to achieve and that's keeping uh, the A&E unit open. Even though we might know differently in our hearts, we have to keep fighting for what the people of County Mead are looking for. Okay. And we need the, the hospital uh, supported and the staff supported. This is a crucial time for them. And I'm thinking of them today as well. Uh, they're, they're under a cloud over all of this. Yet they're working away, doing great work day in, night out uh, in down in Navan. So we've got to support them as well. But from the point of view of the county, it's a disappointing, even though we, we've been clamouring for it, when I re- read it yesterday, when I got it and seen the words reconfigure littered throughout the document, um, it's a very carefully worded document. Mm. It's a craftily worded document. It's a typical HSE yeah. document. Well, you replace reconfigure with closed emergency department. It reads very differently, as we said earlier on. Nick Killian, we have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Independent councillor and chair of Mead County Council, Nick Killian. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if uh, you were listening to us uh, last week, uh, you'll remember we were speaking about e-scooters and how uh, the Irish Times reported that two people died and 42 suffered serious injuries from collisions involving e-scooters since the start of 2020. This week, the Irish Times is reporting how Gardaí have recorded at least 1,373 traffic incidents which involved e-scooters. That includes 440 collisions in the past two and a half years. Some 269 scooters have been seized by the Gardaí, I think, which is pretty interesting. Uh, undoubtedly, there was reason for that. But the paper also says that between the start of this year and the end of July, there were 453 e-scooter traffic incidents, which compares to 640 for all of 2021 and 280 in 2020. So as the years go on, more scooters, more accidents. Let's uh, speak uh, to Timmy Dooley, Fianna Fáil Senator, uh, member of uh, the Oireachtas Transport Committee. Uh, a very good morning to you, Senator Dooley. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always on the programme. Uh, you're looking at the legislation. You're very supportive of these scooters. Uh, it seems as though uh, we're going to uh, have to put in some provision for dealing with uh, the accidents that uh, occur from them, given the amount of incidents that there's been. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Um, look, there's no doubt, and I think you and I have discussed this on numerous occasions, um, there are issues and there are going to be issues. Um, it's a new or a relatively new mode of personal mobility. Um, whether we like it or not, technology has advanced uh, these de- are on sale and they're being utilised. The government have recently brought forward legislation to deal with them in some respects in relation to the licensing, etc., of them and quality of them, etc. But the reality is they're there um, and people are going to use them. Uh, For sure, the guards are confiscating them where they're being misused, etc. But no different to when the bicycle was first introduced. Uh, There will be accidents in the early stages. Now, look, that's that's a difficulty. Uh, in some cases, and sadly, lives have been lost and and will, as they do off bicycles every year. Now, for a long time, and, and I, I try to compare it to bicycles, really, um, because we we. Well, it's a very good comparison because they're going to be treated as bicycles. There are going to be no regulations unless they go over twenty five kilometres an hour. You won't need a license. You won't need tax. You won't need insurance. You won't need a helmet. You won't need anything really, will you? And that's the case with bicycles as well. And as mm. you see, even even the bicycle has moved on. The, the standard high Nelly that I learned to cycle on a long time ago has moved on considerably. And now with the addition of battery packs um, and motorised um, drivers on them, yeah. they can travel faster than they would have here before based on just the brute force or your, your strength or ability to, to cycle the bicycle. And if they can travel over 25 kilometres under this new legislation, you're going to need a licence tax and an yeah. insurance to cycle a bicycle or to drive a bicycle, as the case may be. I'm not sure what you, know, sure you call it if you're not using your feet to drive it. Well, it used to be the case, and my, my, my mother reminded me when, when she started out years ago when there was a lot less traffic on the road, there was a thing called an auto bike, which was a, a, a petrol... Uh, driven um, bicycle, if you want. It didn't reach the term of a motorbike, but it was known as an auto bike. So we've always had advances in technology in, in relation to personal mobility. What we need, and, and I'm glad that, yet again, you're highlighting this issue in public media, and that's what public service broadcasting should be doing more, is highlighting the, the, the potential pitfalls and the dangers associated with these these advances. We need to get better 
about educating people about their use and about their misuse and the impact that it can have on one's life uh, or life-altering injuries to them. It happens off bicycles. I dislocated both my shoulders as a young fella off a bicycle. Um, and I think there are many other people that were, were less fortunate and ended up with, with greater injuries. So mm. I don't see, I, I, I suppose, I, I don't see any huge... Uh, difference here in this instance other than it's new technology um, it's managed and, and used life a little bit differently people have gotten better with, you know, setting the rules of the road in relation to bicycles. Yeah. Motorists are always giving out about, about cyclists cyclists give out about motorists but with better education, better national education programmes um, you know, when we were in primary school we were taught the rules of I think I don't know if that happens anymore. Uh, we were taught about you know etiquette in relation to cycling and 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 how you should or should behave. I'm not so sure if that's part part of um, life. Um, and I think the more the more that uh, issues like this are highlighted in public, the better chance we'll have of reducing accident and injury. But because of the proliferation of them, because of the amount of them in circulation. Uh, you know, I, I felt it for, for a long time that it was very hard to police it. It, it, it it's no different to, to cyclists. It's very hard um, to police misbehaviour. So I, I think mm. the best approach uh, is to set some some standards. Mm, Twenty five uh, kilometres. Let's start with that standard uh, because that uh, anything that travels less than that speed will be treated like a bicycle. So yeah. uh, you, you, you can drive it or whatever at any age. Yeah, because uh, I mean, without good geared, a, yeah, but 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 twenty five kilometres is very fast uh, because that's what the motor is doing, yeah. uh, and that's that, that's on the flat. Mm. If you're going downhill, um, I guess you could double that, couldn't you? With the scooters, to be honest, I doubt it because they have very small wheels. Um, it's the weight of the person on the scooter, depending it, it on the hill. It, it does, yeah, but the, 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 the circumference of the, the wheel also will help to, mm. to speed it up. So, I mean, unlikely that you'll get much above that. I mean, hopefully that the, the, the ones coming in can be managed, but that, that they don't. But look, on a bicycle coming down a hill, the way the, the gear ratios are done on some of the modern bikes, uh, they can certainly get up to a very considerable speed. I think the issue really is... Um, in the confined areas where pedestrians uh, are in existence. Mm. And that's usually around villages and towns. And we do have to encourage people that are purchasing these or utilising these that they have to be mindful and conscious uh, of other people using the same space. And as we work towards getting more people out of their cars from an environmental point of view, reducing the dependence on, on cars from a damage to the environment perspective because uh, a lot of people do take the car a relatively short yeah, But the e-scooter rider seems to think they own the footpath and they want people to get out of their way. I've seen some of that behaviour for sure oh, um, and I think all I the think, time. Any time I see, any time I see uh, someone on an e-scooter approach people on a footpath they're kind of waving at them to get out of the yeah. way like I, I'm trying to drive here what are you doing walking on the footpath? Yeah, there is a bit of that, and there's there's also a bit of this sort of they come towards you and they they sort of almost take pleasure in in some not mm. all but some they take pleasure in sort of shimmying around you mm. to give you a, the sort of fright of your life that mm. that you thought you were about to have a collision and, and then you don't, and I think some of that maybe just that it, it's novel. Um, I, you know, I used to mm. see young fellas doing wheelies on bikes when they first oh, yeah. got them. Yeah, I, yeah, you, yeah. See less mm. of, you see less mm. of that now um, as people get more used to it. I think, I think it's, it's really important 
technology for the future. I think there are teething problems, and I think. Well, I, I, know, was, the, I, I was thinking about it this morning. Um, I was reading uh, about a, a new town uh, with a population that will be greater than uh, the population of Galway City. Uh, which uh, will have no parking, basically, and will hope to be virtually car-free, according to Dublin City Council and South Dublin uh, Council. Yeah, I I think that might be a bit premature. Um, Yeah, but, but, you know, you you can see where we're going uh, and how how there'd be a role for this sort of thing. Well, what what about uh, the faster bikes? Uh, Because the journal.ie was reporting this week uh, on insurance companies uh, and whether they will be providing insurance for bikes, e-bikes and scooters that go over the 25 kilometres an hour because you'll have to be insured, licensed and all of that uh, uh, under this legislation it seems uh, but Insurance Ireland told the journal.ie that it's unaware at present of any motor insurance products in this country designed for e-bikes nor, they say, are we aware of an appetite from the general public to purchase such a product. I don't think there's huge demand for, for, for vehicles that, that go above 25 kilometres an hour. Um, it seems to me that it's kind of short term. In fact, most of the, some of them will be personally owned, but I think the big development in the e-scooters will be uh, similar to what you have in some of our, our cities and larger towns mm. at the minute, where you have that kind of bike rental scheme where you can pick up a bike um, so long as you're you know part of a programme. Um, you, 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 you tag your your tag on um, and you take it for a period of time, you give it back and then you pay for it through mm-hmm. a subscription or an account that you have. Cities effectively all over the world and many across Europe um, have these e-scooters now uh, littering, well, I won't say littering, but, but certainly proliferating the streets mm-hmm. where you just you just take the scooter to, to the location that you want and you leave it there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's based on, on, on a rental system. The next mm-hmm. person comes along picks it up and takes it on the yeah. next... But you distance. probably have a cycle lane, though, in these countries. <laughs> some of them you do, some of them you don't. Um, but mm. but I think that's where, I think that's that's really where you're going to see the most of these, uh, the use of these, a bit like the Dublin bikes, as I said, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they, they, you know, where they've been rolled out elsewhere. So I, I, I don't think there's huge, huge demands. I mean, there may be some, some individuals may want faster ones, but I think they'd probably go to an electric bike then or something like that, which... Um, you're getting into a, a, a different category. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thanks again for right, speaking to us about this. Uh, that's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, a, a member of the Oireachtas Transport Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Housing crisis and look at all of uh, the empty properties in every town and village uh, around uh, the country. Why don't we bring them back into use? You hear that being said all of the time, don't you? And you also hear that there's loads of reasons for it uh, because they're not uh, available because people are in nursing homes or uh, they're in probate or or whatever it is uh, but uh, God knows how many houses are actually available to bring back into use. Well uh, Martin Markey is uh, the Chief Executive Officer with uh, the Hardware Association of Ireland and perhaps Martin you have uh, the answer. Uh, You certainly have some very interesting figures in a report that you've uh, just published called Empty Homes Unlocking the Opportunity Uh, and you've been looking at the number of vacant properties or properties that became vacant since 2016. Do tell us more if you would please. Well, uh, firstly, Michael, thank you very much for, for having us on. And if I may, I'll just say a little word about Hardware Association Ireland. We are uh, the representative body for 400 builders, merchants, hardware shops, and, and building materials uh, manufacturers. And 
uh, locally we'd have quite a few members Wogan Bill Centre and, and, and Martyrs of Drogheda and we have, we have many other good members I'm not going to give a shout out to everyone in the, in the LMFM catchment area but yes we've been looking at this uh, the topic of, uh, of empty homes for, for a couple of years and I, think, I don't think it's any secret that the, the, the situation in terms of availability of, of housing and affordability of housing in particular has got more acute over, over, over the last couple of years. And if, if you look at some of the numbers, uh, since 2006, our population has grown by 21% and our housing stock has grown by 13%. And that gap, that gap is widening. Um, you know, since 2006, we have an extra 900,000 people in, in, in the country. And over the next 15 years, we uh, plan to have another million in the country. So something really does need to be done in terms of, uh, in, in terms of housing and the affordability of housing and new build isn't going to do the, do it all unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, this year um, I think most people most experts in the field of housing uh, say that we need about 35,000 new homes per year. This year, we'd be lucky to reach about 23,000. So we, we're going to have to do something uh, quite, quite different. And, and, and of the existing stock, 8% or, or so are vacant. Is that right? Yes. Mm. Uh, our, like our, our vacancy rates are much, much higher than any of our European partners yeah. and across the water in the UK, similar. Now, uh, Some of them are derelict, was, though. So, I mean, uh, they're beyond repair. Well, we're, we're focusing on, on, on more so on, on vacant homes, yeah. um, uh, Michael. Um, that, that's more the, issue, uh, more the issue for us. So if, if we look at uh, homes that have become vacant, uh, homes that were occupied in, in 2016, which mm. are now vacant in, in the census of, of, yeah. of, of 22, there's about 86,000 of those. Now, those are probably more economically viable to turn back into living homes again. And well, you'd we have to imagine so. That is, that is economically viable. Yeah. Sorry. And it is a, a, an interesting way of looking at it and a very logical way of looking at it if uh, if somebody could live in them six years ago uh, it's probable that somebody could live in them today with a, a bit of work and I think that's the point you're making yes that's the point we're making and look what we're looking at uh, you start off with a figure nationally of about 86,000 and then if we look at uh, areas where there is huge demand uh, that's largely towns of 5,000 plus you're down to about 50,000 and then if we take an example from our colleagues in Scotland and we We've been speaking to the Scottish Home Partnership uh, for quite some time now. So they estimate that in Scotland about about 25% are, as you just mentioned earlier on, they're, they're, they're tied up in legal entails. So we're saying more or less to, to, because of the, uh, the, 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 the slow progress mm-hmm. in anything legal in this country yeah. that we put those aside. We take out those in fair deeds. You're down to about 34,000 homes. And we have 17 proposals, uh, which broadly speaking fit into about three categories to, to, to bring those back to life and bring them back to life fairly quickly as well. Okay, uh, and as you said at the outset, you're a vested interest in this uh, because you're Absolutely. talking about you're, you're talking about renovating these homes. Uh, yes. But uh, I mean, yeah. when people walk down the street and say, "Look at all these vacant properties," why can't we bring them back into use? That's exactly what they want uh, to do. So you're, you're saying it, it, it's possible to bring thirty four thousand houses back to the market. Uh, uh, And to do that, uh, you're talking about making grants available to people. That's one of your proposals, at least. We are. uh, I suppose one of the main proposals is we currently have the Help to Buy scheme uh, for first-time buyers. A major proposal that that we have put forward is to extend that to a Help to Buy and Renovate. So it's not just for first-time, sorry, it's not just for newly built homes, but we extend it then to to, to vacant homes. And for that grant to be about 50,000, because 
you know, anyone taking on, we've all seen the programs on television, anyone taking on a, a vacant or an empty home, um, you know, you are taking a risk on it. So uh, we, we believe that that's, it's, a fair, it's, a, it's a fair price for the grant, shall we say. Mm. Um, we're also then looking at incentives for the people who own these properties because you know if we look at uh, again if we take the example of Scotland which you know in terms of culture in terms of legal in terms of uh, in their attitudes towards property is quite similar to us and mm. if we look at what's happened over there they've found that uh, quite often that the uh, the owners of the properties don't don't know what to do with them because they either don't have the financial wherewithal or else they don't have the, the local knowledge so uh, what we're looking at there for uh, people who own the empty properties is a, the repair and lease scheme currently is is in place, so we're looking for that to be extended to about sixty sixty thousand. That's a zero interest loan. Uh, but then we're also looking at if they rent out the property for five years, that they get a tax rebate on the rental income, mm-hmm. providing the rental income is okay. fair. So All they right, get a tax yeah, rebate yeah. on that. Mm-hmm. And should they wish to sell it, uh, there is no capital gains in t- uh, no capital gains on that for for a period of two years to get okay. a little bit of to get a little bit of energy into the market. That's the carrot. That's the carrot. Uh, and that's the carrot. We're, we're hearing this year uh, that the budget is most likely going to introduce a, a vacant property tax uh, and here comes the, here comes the stick what are you suggesting well, should be the stick well you, you, well you can't have a carrot without a stick i suppose but i, I suppose again what has worked in scotland uh, isn't so much the uh, cpo's compulsory purchase orders they, they tend to be very very cumbersome but what has worked in scotland is a vacant property tax and what we're proposing is a vacant property tax of six percent six percent of the value of the house to be paid every year in tax Correct. That's wow. correct. So mm. if you go back to what we were talking about at the outset, if you take the 86,000 homes and each of them is worth, shall we say, 100, 100K thereabouts, and you have a 6, 000, or 6% uh, uh, vacant property tax on that, that the, the money taken in from that will pay for the grant. So to that extent, it's self-financing. Okay. It's a very interesting proposal. Uh, and I'm sure one that your members would benefit from greatly uh, but uh, yeah. I think it's probably true to say that if it, if it worked the way you uh, presented and it's a, a very uh, convincing argument you make uh, that it would benefit the country given the disastrous situation we're in as uh, the President described it. Martin we have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Martin Markey is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Hardware Association Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, you'll have heard us uh, speak uh, to Dermot on the programme uh, about how he got a, a parking ticket uh, after parking in Kennedy Place. Uh, as he said, part of his vehicle was on the white line. Uh, and he argued the point, uh, I think he said he lost it really with uh, the traffic warden at uh, the time. Uh, but he, he did feel it was unfair. Uh, and we were in touch uh, with uh, the parking company, uh, Polka, and uh, they say that they've investigated that situation. Uh, and as Dermot's photographs show, the vehicle was incorrectly parked and clearly taking up two spaces in a busy car park in Navan as a result of fine was imposed. The car next to Dermot's vehicle, they say, looked to be parked correctly. Uh, but they say another vehicle may have been there before he arrived, uh, but the warden may not have seen this, as this was an instant fine with no observation as per pay and display. Also, they say the warden reports uh, that the gentleman in question was angry and swearing and claimed the car alongside him was over the line when he got there. Our warden asked the gentleman to stop being rude, and the driver did apologise in the end. The driver is within their right 
rights to appeal to Meath County Council. So I take it uh, from that uh, that if you're parking in Kennedy Place, uh, you should be within the white lines or expect to be fined as per the regulations. Now to some of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Mary says she'd like to agree with uh, Councillor Nick Killian that there needs to be public representatives on the panel of this working group uh, which is reviewing uh, the situation at the hospital in Navan. Mary believes there should also be representatives of community groups and the general public on the panel to make sure that all bases are covered. It's only fair that the local community have a say in what is going on in their local hospital. Jack says, Minister Donnelly's behaviour regarding the hospital has been contemptible to say the least. The way he has ignored requests from local media outlets to keep the people of Meath informed about the future of their hospital is disgusting and arrogant. The Minister needs to know that the people of Meath will not forget how he has acted and his party colleagues should remember it as well because they will be punished for his behaviour at the ballot box when the next election rolls around. Peter wants to know how on earth the HSE expects the Lords to cope with the overflow from Navan Hospital when they are already bursting at the seams. Health services in general are under huge pressure locally and particularly in Drogheda of late and Peter says he recently tried to get an appointment with his GP. It was incredibly difficult. He couldn't get one until the following week. And he says he's also heard from people who've been told to take a picture of their injuries or bruises and send them to the GP. He says he's 70 years of age and he wouldn't know where to begin to take a picture or how to send it to his doctor. Peter says, we're on a slippery slope. If this is how our health service is going to go, it'll leave many older people worried. And how are they going to manage going forward? Thanks, uh, Peter, uh, for sharing your thoughts with us on that. A lot of people in touch with us about e-scooters as well today. Uh, i bring you some of those comments now. Pat says uh, that the volume of bicycles and electrical electric bicycles or scooters e-bikes or e-scooters is going to continue to increase in the coming years. Pat firmly believes that the government needs to look at introducing some form of insurance for bikes and scooters. Uh, He says anyone who is using the public road should have to have some form of insurance. It's only fair that all road users are treated equally. If an ordinary bike or scooter collided with a car, it could cost thousands of euro of damage and the motorists would have no comeback. Pat thinks this needs to change. Sheila says anyone found using one of these scooters on a footpath should face a hefty on-the-spot fine or should have their vehicles confiscated. They're a scourge in public footpaths and they pose a serious safety risk to pedestrians. More needs to be done to keep them in check, says Sheila in her message to us. Uh, and thanks uh, for your call uh, as well, Sheila, for that matter. Uh, a lot of uh, people in touch, as I say, about e-scooters this morning. Uh, But let's go back to the issue of the hospital just for a a minute, if we can, because uh, we've seen the terms of reference. um, I don't think they've been published. I'm not sure if you've seen them, but we'll try to publish them on our websites today and on our social media sites and all of that sort of thing so that you can have a a look at them uh, for yourself. Uh, But the terms of reference say that uh, the group the reference the the, the 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 review was established in July and they were only published or only uh, agreed this week um I, 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 it's a, it's one of these peculiar things 
uh, because you couldn't do the work unless you had agreed what the work was going to be. And this is a point we've been making for some time. In fact, it's a, a point that we were making with uh, local minister Helen McEntee uh, back on the 5th of August. Uh, and we were asking if the work had actually begun. Yes. So my understanding is that the work has started on us, yes. Two weeks underway. I, I don't have the exact time frame of, of well, when we were it told started, we were told it would start two weeks ago, uh, and uh, it, it seems peculiar. Does it seem is it is it peculiar that uh, work on a review is underway without the terms of reference for that uh, review being agreed? Well, I, I don't know whether it's preliminary work or not, but I have been told. So again, I can only go by what I've been told. And you'd have to have a, a lot of confidence in what a government minister was told. That's Helen McEntee, the minister speaking on the 5th of August. Uh, the question was, did the work on this review begin the week beginning the 25th of July? Michael, I can only respond to the information that I have. Um, and the information that I have is that work has started. So whether it's preliminary work, whether it's everything together, whether it's everybody in the, the who's part of the review starting, I, I don't know. Minister didn't know when the work uh, began or what type of work began, but the minister had been told that the work had begun and probably two weeks before she was speaking to us then on the 5th of August. I can only say to you what I know, but I do know that I have been told it will be published next week. I do know that I've been told work has started. So to what extent? I, I don't have exact clarity on that, unfortunately. Um, but again, the, the various different areas that will be looked at, capacity in our A&Es, Ambulance service, primary care. Right, that's Minister Helen McEntee speaking on the 5th of August. And this is the interesting bit because the Minister told us that the work had begun previously uh, and quite possibly the week beginning the 25th of July. But there's no doubt, and you heard her say it there three times on the 5th of August, work had already begun. As I understand it now, it's beginning now. Ah. And basically, well, I mean, this, ah. what we're trying to do is, what we're trying to make no, sure... No, no. We've, we, we we've been told that a, a review was underway. I, I, I've never said that to you. No, um, no, we've been told so that by the HSE. We, 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 we've, we've put several questions uh, to the Minister, to the HSE, to the Department of Health, uh, all... Uh, making it very clear that we were working off the assumption that what we were told was true, that that work began the week beginning the 25th of July. Look, they will have to answer for that. I'm telling you what the situation is today. The terms of reference have now been finalised. This is basically, I mean, the terms of reference finalising was basically about getting the, the T's crossing the I's done. If you're asking, about, if you're asking people to trust this process, given what I've just said, uh, I, I think what that's a tall about, ask. What this is about is what the Minister asked for. After that meeting and after the questions you've been raising on the radio over the last two months, and other people have as well. Right, that's Minister Thomas Byrne telling us yesterday that the work is about to begin. Uh, it's interesting, I think, at least to listen to it uh, contrasted with what Minister Helen McEntee was telling us on the 5th of August that the work had already begun. Hmm. Not everyone can be right. All right, uh, we'll take a, a break and uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about this later in the programme. 
People across all 26 Catholic Church dioceses in this country have been making their views known on reform of the church and the future of the church known to the hierarchy since last October. And all of this has fed into a document uh, which was published yesterday by the bishops of Ireland, uh, the National Synthesis document, uh, which has been sent to Rome ahead of a synod of bishops, which has been called by Pope Francis for October of next year. Let's speak now to Bishop Michael Reuter, Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh and member of the Synod Steering Group. And a very good morning to you, Bishop Reuter. Thank you indeed for joining morning, us Michael. on the programme uh, this morning. T- tell us a, a, a little bit about um, what the people of Ireland are saying to the church leaders in this country. Well, it's a very, it, the document itself is, is, is quite a short document and very readable. And I, I would encourage people uh, to, to look at that and to, to maybe go on the synod.ie website uh, to access the document and to have a look at it for themselves. Uh, it, it covers quite a, a large range of, of themes. And it's a response to uh, Pope Francis' call last year when, when setting up this synodal process uh, to to listen to the people in the various different parts of the world, in the different continents, uh, in different dioceses, different communities, to listen to what they had to say about what it was to be part of of the church uh, today. So, in our consultation, which we began last October, uh, now we've unfortunately we ran into some difficulties and, and problems around COVID nineteen for the early part. Uh, of that consultation in the sense that we we couldn't have too many public gatherings, but we did try to have a presence uh, online to encourage as many people uh, to respond to the basic questions of what what God wants from us today, what what our experience of churches is like in today's world. And uh, over the past eight or nine months, uh, people have responded, not not huge numbers, about 2,000 people, in the Archdiocese of Armagh who have responded uh, to our, our survey to um, gather together in, in small groups to discuss the questions, to discuss what, what their own experience was. Mm. And in that, they came up with a number of, of themes such as co-responsible leadership, um, the sense of, of belonging, uh, the role of, of lay people in, in ministry, uh, clergy, uh, LGBTQI plus issues, sexuality and relationships, adult faith formation. So there, there were various different issues that people uh, talked about. Mm. So it's a very open, it's a very honest uh, document. It's an honest expression, I think, of where people are at today. And that's exactly what, what Pope Francis wanted. He wanted to listen uh, to that so that they can be fed into a process, a synodal process within the wider universal church and to see how can we perhaps make changes in how we present the teaching of Jesus Christ okay. so that people won't feel as excluded or marginalised. And bishops from uh, around the world will meet in Rome next October uh, to discuss uh, what people were saying in countries all around the world about the future of the church uh, will you and the Irish bishops go to Rome next to- October and say, well, people in this country would like women priests, for example, or a role for women? 
Well, definitely. I mean, it's 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 quite clear what people want in that synthesis document. So, I mean, we're not going there to say this is the way things should be. It's, it is a process of discussion. Mm. Synod is different from sort of a parliamentary discussion where you have people on the left, people on the right, and they're arguing against each other, and then there's a vote at the end of it, and whoever... <laughs> Mm. wins the vote, wins the argument. Mm. Mm. It's not like that. It's it's discerning what the Spirit is saying to us, to what people are saying. Mm. Discerning what the Spirit is saying to us in the modern world about how we are researching, how we present the teachings of Jesus Christ. That is the important thing. Okay. And, you know, the... But will you, will, 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 will you try to sell the contents uh, of the document to the bishops of the world when you're in Rome with them? Well, each of the, the countries in the world have have pr- provided their own synthesis of, of their own consultation, and, and there's a lot of similarities mm. uh, in what has emerged uh, right across the world. So, I mean, we, we will be there to, to say, look, at, this is where our people are at, mm. okay? This is what our people are saying. Mm. How can we preserve the teachings of Jesus Christ in that sort of milieu, and make people feel that they are part of the church. Hmm. How can they have a greater sense of, of belonging okay. within the church? Uh, even uh, if they're not living according to the the ideals, who of us are? Okay. But, we're, uh, we're, but all sinners, uh, uh, maybe we're all sinners. We're all struggling. And maybe we can talk uh, about some, some, some of um, those issues uh, in a moment. But let's say just for uh, to make it a, a more simple, straightforward kind of conversation, if we, let's talk about women priests. Uh, will you be going there saying, uh, women should uh, be ordained. We should we should accept that women uh, can have a, an equal role in the church to men, because that's what people in Ireland want. Will you be, will you be selling what's in the document? I, I think it's very clear from from what's in the document that people you know want women to have a greater role in in the church. That there is that is very clear, and that's in various different ways at, at decision making level and also in ministry. Uh, and, and there are ways in which that, that can be done and there are ways in which that can be um, put into practice. And I would be an advocate for a greater um, involvement of women definitely in the church. But we have to listen to what others have to say. We have to try and discern that in the light of the teaching and practice of Jesus Christ and, and see what is, is the best way forward. Mm. So, you know, it's not a matter of, of, of going there with a sort of a manifesto and, and saying this is the way things should be. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's trying to, to see how we can put into practice, um, you know, the, the feelings, the thoughts of people and, and to give women a greater role where they feel that they are actually heard. Okay. I think a lot of women don't feel, I mean, we, we depend on women. We rely on women in so many parishes and parishes that I worked in. Mm. Uh, women were so important in terms of keeping the church alive at the local community. And we have to, we have to find a way to bring them to the top table, to bring them into the decision-making process, so that it's not perceived as, as just all elderly men who are making decisions, but that women are involved there as well. Yeah, and that is the problem for the church at the moment, isn't it? Um, it's made up of elderly men, the leadership, that is. Yes, by by and large, mm. I mean mm. that is that is the case. Mm. 
um, and, and that is the perception that, that so many people have, and it is a perception that's based on, on a certain amount of reality. Mm. Uh, I mean, women do have very advanced roles in, in church and in church life, and the, the chair of our uh, Synodal Steering Committee is Dr. Nicola Brady, um, a woman who's involved in so many different areas of, of church life, particularly in, in ecumenism. So, you know, there are women involved there, but but the perception among people is that they aren't, that they're not really listened to, that their views are not taken mm. on board. And that's just and w- one issue. Uh, and undoubtedly, there'll be arguments uh, uh, on both sides when it comes to all of the issues. There's 195 countries in the world, uh, and I take it the bishops from all of the countries will be represented. Uh, how will the process uh come to a determination on any of these issues? Well, there, there is an intermediary stage, which is going to be the continental stage, and that will take place next uh, February, uh, early next year. And that's where the, where the representatives from each of the countries in Europe will get together to discuss the issues that have emerged within Europe. Mm. And uh, then you have, you'll have similar continental synods in, in Africa and Asia and North America, South America. And, you know, it's through the process of a, a conversation. I mean, this mm. is an ongoing process. This is only the start of the process. Mm. I mean, people think it, it might be the conclusion and that there'll be, uh, by 2023, everything will have changed completely. It, it won't. Mm. It's going to be a slow process because you have to try and bring everybody along those with, with different viewpoints and divergent viewpoints. Mm. We have to avoid polarization within the church. Okay. We have to avoid schism. And the only way we can do that is through a process of talking. Mm. And, and we are moving uh, within the church here in Ireland into our own synodal process, which will, uh, the stage of it will conclude in 2026, but that won't be the finish of it either. We will continue to talk. Synodality is the new way of being church, basically. Okay. So it's something that's going to be ongoing. It's not going to be an overnight change, but I think it, it's sort of, if we look at the church, we often think of the image of the pyramid, that things are constantly coming from the top down mm. without any consolation with those on the lower rungs of the pyramid. That, that's changed. Francis, Pope Francis wants mm. to change that, to have a more circular model of church, where uh, there's uh, constant uh, dialogue between people and those in leadership. I was asking. The voice, the, the thoughts of, of, of everyone are, are taken into account. Okay. Uh, I, I was asking you about the role of women in the church, Bishop Brewster, uh, because I, I don't know, but I, I would imagine it's one of the less controversial issues and one of uh, the easier issues uh, to contend with, despite the fact that people will say uh, Jesus Christ and his apostles were all men and it's been the way for 2,000 years. Uh, (laughs) But there are uh, more complicated issues, aren't there? I mean, you you talk about LGBTI plus people uh, and I, I take it when it comes to these conversations, you're talking about everybody... Uh, discussing the views uh, that they've heard from their diocese and parishioners uh, and weighing them up uh, and trying to come up with something somewhere in the middle. Uh, But you're going to have diametrically opposed views on something like that, aren't you, where you're going to be saying they're just people, they're normal people, and they should be treated like any other of God's children. On the other hand, then, you're going to hear from people who will say they're intrinsically evil because that's what the church has taught them. Yeah, the... 
it's going to be a difficult conversation for, for, for a lot of people. But, I mean, when we think about it, you know, part of our lifetime up to the 80s, um, you know, homosexuality was outlawed in civil law. Uh, and there's been a massive change, I think, in that time because, uh, you know, as pe- gay people have become more out in the open, in a sense, and, and people know who they are and that, and, and they are related to them, and they're next-door neighbours, and they walk along with them, you know, there's a sense, a more of a sense of a welcoming approach uh, to people who are LGBTQI. And uh, there's a perception, I suppose, that that the church is, is, is out of sync with that, is out of touch with that. But once again, like, like, mm. like women within the church that we're so dependent upon in so many parishes or whatever, I mean, in the various parishes in which I served in, there was gay people who were um, regular mass attenders, who were involved in, in parish life, uh, who, who brought so many of their many gifts uh, to bear on the local community. And, you know, I think we have to move away from the sort of judgmental approach. People often perceive the churches as judging uh, those who are gay. And yes, the language that the church uses at times does not help that. And we have to, we have to change that approach. We have to change that language and, and to accept uh, LGBTQI people as our brothers and sisters as on the journey with us, no more, no less a sinner than most of the rest of us. And, you know, that it, that's going to be difficult for some people. It is going to be difficult for some mm. people. But once very, again... Very difficult, we, given, you know, that turn of phrase that most people, I, I think, or most people I, I know, uh, find o- offensive. Uh, be, but because that's what the church has taught people over the years. Yeah, the language, as I said, the language that the church has used has been divisive and has unfortunately made people people feel that they are marginalised in the church, that they're not accepted. Uh, and I think that's something that this um, process that we're involved in now within the, the, the synodal process can help to change, mm. can help to change the perception, can help to change the approach, can help to... Uh, to reach out to those uh, who are marginalised for whatever reason. I don't like putting labels on people because that automatically uh, sort of puts them in a box as such. Mm. Uh, But to reach out to all people, uh, no matter what their circumstances in life, and to to make them understand and feel that they belong, that they belong in the church, that they have a role to play in the church, and that the church is accepting of them and is helping them, Mm. assisting them, to try and live the way that Christ wants us to live. There is that also is what the church is about. There is also a, a perception when it comes to a lot of these moral issues uh, that there's a lot of hypocrisy in, in the church and the LGBTI plus community probably is a very good example of that and turns a phrase like intrinsically evil coming from church leaders uh, and at the same time uh, we know that there's many gay priests we know that there's many priests who are practicing homosexuals uh, equally when it comes to moral issues such as divorce or people getting remarried who are condemned from the pulpit we know that uh, many priests have lived in sin they've had intimate relationships uh, and they've become fathers themselves uh, and uh, you have 
than the ultimate hypocrisy, it would seem, of the modern church in this country, which is that contraception is a sin, uh, and the vast majority of Catholics in this country uh, who are in an intimate relationship are using or have used contraception at some stage. Well, just back to the first part of of your your question, your comment, I mean, priests are, are human beings as well. Uh, and they're as open to temptation and to sinfulness and to, to doing evil as, as anyone else is. They, they are tempted in the same way. Uh, but when you, when you work out of the model of church that is very hierarchical, uh, very, you know, much a pyramid in, in, in structure, then people will say, well, those who are at the top should be living every aspect of the Christian teaching, you know, to the letter of the law. If, if it's not done that way, then it's rightly perceived as being hypocritical. But we, we have to, the synodal process is, is uh, as I said, a, a process of, of conversation, of dialogue, of discussion, where we all are on the same boat effectively. And we're trying to help each other through life to live the way that Christ wanted us to live. Mm. and that, you know, some of us are further along the line maybe than others are, but that we're all still together and that we treat everybody uh, with, with respect. And that, you know, part of the, I suppose, of the, of the process, for me, having been involved in, in adult faith formation for about 10 years um, back in, in the Diocese of Kilmore when I worked there, you know, we have really failed people in, in bringing them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, in, in really getting them to, to understand Christ's teachings. Mm. And, uh, you know, not having that sort of stereotypical uh, picture of, you know, love God, love your neighbor, mm. that sort of thing, and, and there's nothing else involved in it. Jesus challenges us in so many ways uh, to, to, to live uh, a life that is worthy of God. But it's difficult. Yeah. Those ideals are difficult to achieve. How di- we're, all on the, how- we're all on that journey. We're all on that path to trying to get there. How difficult so is if it? I pre- if I present myself mm. as a bishop, as someone perfect, then, you know, say a wrong word and mm. instantly I can be called a hypocrite, and rightly so. How, how difficult you know? is it, though, Bishop? Uh, 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 is it evil when it comes to these moral issues? Uh uh, if you're not perfect, is that evil, or have you given in to temptation, or is it just simply being human? Uh, and I think that uh, probably brings us to the question of uh, the celibacy rules for priests. Yeah, well, to be a Christian is to be fully human and 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 fully alive. And uh, you know, I think that that probably changes as as time progresses and as history. Uh, proceeds. I mean, the world in which we live in today is a very different world to what was even 40, 50, 60 years ago, not to say three or 400 years ago. Uh, you know, people living longer. Uh, we're living in a very sexualized culture, you know, where, where sex sells effectively. It's, it's all pervasive in our society. And, you know, it's, it's, Perhaps difficult to to ask a young man or a young woman in twenty four twenty five years of age to to live a celibate life for sixty seventy maybe eighty years mm. 
you know, it is it is a big challenge nowadays. So yes, it's something that we're going to have to 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 reflect on. That you know, that should it be an obligation to be celibate in order to be a priest, or is there room for people to make that choice? Uh, but the important thing is that when they make the choice, that they live that choice well. That is the issue. And it's not something that is forced uh, upon them and that they grudgingly uh, try to live in their lives. Okay. So, you know, yes, that that, that issue is, is there for, for discussion. There's a lot to be said for celibacy. There's a mm. lot of positive aspects of celibacy as well. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, I've lived as a priest for, for 33 years, and I, I think it would have been very difficult you know, to have raised a family in that sort of situation. Um, very difficult on, on your wife and on your family as well to be the, the son of a, of a, of a priest and, mm. and the role that the, that the priest has within, the, within a community. Or on your husband. Or, <laughs> well, who knows? Mm. That might happen, mm. yes. I don't mean you but. personally. I mean, but, you know, for mm-hmm. um, when it comes to the question of celibacy uh, and indeed uh, you couple that with the LGBTI, I, 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 I guess that that's the potential uh, of uh, this process that you could see change on that scale. I'm not going to ask you to predict the outcome, uh, but is it your belief uh, that the church is on the brink of significant reform? Well, yes, I, I think the synodal process will bring about reform, maybe not quite as quickly as, as people might just think. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot that we can do over the, over the coming years uh, to make the church more accessible to people, uh, not something that, that seems to be a judgmental institution uh, that's removed from where people are at. We want people to realize that we do understand the struggles of their daily life and that we're there to, to, to help and to be of assistance in that and not to judge them, no matter what the circumstances of their life may be. Um, if you do that, you just alienate people and nobody listens to you. Okay. Uh, so I, I, think, I think there will be reform in the way that we, we work and operate as a church and how we are structured as a church to try and give a voice to as many people as possible in the decisions that we make. No longer can we have this idea of just things being handed down from above. Uh, This is how you live, and that's it. No questions. uh, No room for debate. Those days are gone. Uh, we, we need a change in that structure. Okay. All right. Well, look, thank you very much indeed, uh, Bishop Michael, for uh, taking the time to speak to us uh, and talk us through all of uh, that uh, on the programme uh, this morning. Always good to talk to you. And uh, as I say, it's much appreciated. That's Bishop Michael Reuter, the Auxiliary Bishop of Armagh, a member of uh, the Synod Steering Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. We've all taken a, a pay cut, effectively at least, we've all taken a, a pay cut. Whether you're working or not, uh, your spending power has reduced greatly. And as a result of that, Age Action Ireland is calling for a €23 Euro increase in uh, the state pension. Let's speak to Celine Clark, who's Head of Advocacy and Communications with Age Action. Good morning to you, Celine. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, and you're estimating that the pay cut for pensioners who are on a contributory state pension this year will amount to about €600. That's right, Michael. Thanks for having us um, on to speak to you today and your listeners. 
So our analysis, which is based on average incomes and savings from CSO surveys, finds that the average older person living alone will lose about €1,500 in spending power by the end of 2022, and an older couple will lose about €3,300. And what this effectively means is that if you had €100 in your pocket in January, um, it is going to buy you about €91 worth of stuff in December because of the impact of inflation, the rising cost of living. Your money gets you less stuff now. And for older persons who, the majority of which depend on the state pension, it's generally accepted that the state pension is the bedrock of the social welfare system. And for those people, they're at a crisis point now because they have no way of going to the boss and asking for an increase or for extra shifts to get overtime. They're relying on the government Mm. to make a decision in Budget 2023 about what their income is going to be next year. Okay, if you had a a thousand euro in your purse in January, uh, you'd have the spending power of 911 euro come December. That's right, yeah. That's what our analysis shows because of the experience of inflation at 9.8%. So basically what we're saying is although the, the amount looks the same, the spending power of it is reduced nearly 10%. Right. Um, if you are on 253 euro, it's about 13,000 a year. Taking a 600 cut off 13,000 is hugely significant. It is hugely significant. And, and the problem is, of course, they don't have a way to make it up. Um, most older persons depend on the state pension. They're not working. Um, they may not be able to work um, for various reasons, including they may not be able to get a job because the labour market can be a very ageist space to be in. Um, We know that lots of people, even in their 50s, report that it's difficult for them to get a job and they point to their age as being one of those factors. But people in their 80s and their 90s cannot be expected to go out to work if they don't want (laughs) to. Watch that space. (laughs) I'm not really joking. I'm thinking of uh, the age uh, that you'll qualify for the state pension. Um, uh, There was a a theory going around at one stage uh, that uh, you could have uh, the pension as high as you like if uh, people didn't live long enough to claim it. Uh, But when we talk about the budget this year, €23, that seems uh, to be off the scale. It looks like uh, it'll be €15. Well, €23 is what is needed to stand still. So it's evidence-based policy. We've looked at the numbers. We've looked at the loss of um, the the spending power of the state pension. And of course, in other countries, including in the UK, the pension will increase because it is indexed against inflation. So if we had a system here where we indexed the, the pension and social welfare mm-hmm. payments, we wouldn't need to go through this budgetary process, which is you know, a sort of a political football Hmm. um, because it increases as the cost of living increases. And so that gives people two things. It gives them income adequacy so they know they have enough, but it also gives people income security in the sense that they know they will have enough um, and so they can manage their lives accordingly. So, like, there are lots of people now already, we know from our lived experience survey of older persons and the people that contact us through our information service, 
that many older persons are already making choices mm. um, and adjustments in their lives, whether it's not turning on heating for as long or taking less travel uh, journeys in their car. And of course, mm. for people who are living in rural Ireland, as I do, um, you, you can't always rely on public transport in the same way as you do with the city. So you do have to keep a car on the road. Yeah. You have to keep it taxed, you have to keep it insured and you have to keep fuel in it. Yeah. Uh, and you also have to keep it maintained. And all of this costs money. And when you don't have sufficient income in your pension to be able to pay for this increased cost of living, you're at a point then where you're at a crisis point. And that's why we're saying that anything less than an increase of €23 in the state pension will be a political choice to cut the living standards of those on fixed incomes. It's not an economic necessity. There are there is money in the state coffers to be able to pay for this, raising all um, social welfare payments by twenty euro, which mm. is largely what our um, sector is calling for, including mm. twenty three euro in the state pension is affordable. It costs one point five billion to do so, and there's several billion of funds extra in the coffers this year because inflation, of course, puts up cost of living, but it also puts up mm. taxes. And there's also increased corporate tax of about five billion, I think. Uh, instead of the one and a half billion that it would cost uh, to do the 20 euro, I think uh, the government is looking at around 1.2 billion for 15 euro. The budget will be announced on the 27th of September. And I imagine uh, that uh, on that date, uh, you'll have your calculator out because based on the options, as we were told, that were put forward by the tax strategy group, I imagine uh, you'd be doing well if there was an increase of anything more than €15. I'm sure you'll be hoping that I'm wrong, uh, but if it is €15, I'm sure you'll have your calculator out because you'll have a a lot of adding up to do to see uh, what other measures uh, will bring up the income for people, uh, whether that's the double payment that we're told could possibly happen in October, like the Christmas bonus uh, on top of the Christmas bonus or an increase in the household package or the fuel allowance or credits on fuel and things to help people put petrol in their car and that sort of thing as well, Celine. Um, What we're saying is the pension is the bedrock and we have to make sure that it doesn't weaken. So that's the the system that puts money in the pockets of people where they have choice and control over how to spend it. Targeted measures such as the fuel allowance are welcome for those who get it, but the majority of people on the state pension don't actually qualify for the the fuel allowance. Um, For those that get it, obviously it's worth it uh, and it is an important measure. Um, Equally so is the living alone allowance. Um, That is a really important measure that's there as well. But anything else is just a contribution to a small amount but it doesn't cover the significant loss of spending power and that's why we're saying protect the state pension stabilise it a 23 euro increase this year and then ultimately index it so that we don't have this worry every year about and politics been played with the incomes of people who depend on it and they have no other way of making it up. If you've lost your savings, you know, the average person over the age of 66 who lives alone has savings of around €5,000 and that has been eroded as it sits in the bank or the credit union now because it doesn't have the same spending power and most people won't realise this. They'll see Mm. the balance is the same Mm. but actually it's not going to get you the same amount of stuff in twenty. Well, that's a a very good example that you've given if you've a thousand euro in your bank, it's actually nine hundred and eleven euro. At least that'll be the difference between what it was worth in January and what it's worth in December. 
Yeah, what it's going to be able to get you is the equivalent mm. of 911 euro. Yeah. Very good. All right, Celine. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Much appreciated. That's uh, Celine Clark, Head of Advocacy and Communications with Age Action Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. A text from someone saying the emergency department in Navan is closing. They did it in Dundalk. The politicians at the time said it's not closing and it's closed. Somebody else says, Michael, that's exactly what it is needed. Putting the services in place, we need to save Navan Hospital, upgrade it, not downgrade it. We, the people, want everything put in place. Thousands of people deserve that. Our Lady of Lourdes can't cope as it is. Reconfigure the place out now. Do they think the people are stupid? Thank you for keeping a light on this. Uh, says our listener, Sam in Dundalk, says, I met two grown men on e-scooters the other day coming out of a garage in Dundalk. It's one way on the way out of there and both of them flew towards me on the middle of in the middle of the road going the wrong way you really need eyes in the back of your head these days then I saw a man with a very small girl no more than three years of age standing in front of him holding onto the handlebars they were also on the road and I wouldn't like to think of the injuries she would sustain in an accident says Sam uh, somebody else saying I don't understand uh, that why it's not legal for these people on e-scooters uh, how they can get away without wearing a helmet it doesn't make sense uh, another text about that from somebody who says there's a cycle lane all around the marshes in Dundalk and a lot of bikes choose to use the road causing chaos at busy times. Looks like it's do what you like on a bike or an e-scooter. There are no rules. Margaret says the only reason for the review of Navin is to make sure the A&D closes and if the HSE uh, that's reviewing themselves are not going to say we got it wrong, well then who's going to take responsibility? If someone from me that dies in an ambulance en route to another hospital after bypassing Navin or while waiting for hours on a trolley in another hospital what will happen our lady's hospital won't be to blame so who will be says Margaret uh, the first people on earth uh, says somebody else were Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve for a reason which uh, is obviously objecting uh, to the Catholic Church uh, accepting uh, practicing uh, gay people or same sex people uh, Paddy Duffy says there's no other religion in the world that treats women like the Catholic Church. Oh, oh wait a minute, he says. There's at least one. that They celebrated one year in power a day ago or so. Oh, Paddy. Uh, somebody else, uh, Robert, uh, says uh, about the Synod, having listened to, to the bishop, all that seems fit for the discussion is the further liberalisation of uh, the Church, much in a similar fashion post-Vatican II. The Church is trying to get trendy with the world by altering its mission, which is to get souls to heaven. Uh, the liturgy has been destroyed in the process. Little or no reverence is shown. Irish people have been pearly catechized and are now looked upon to give the church guidance. It's farcical. The bishops are derelict in expecting people to come back to the church when it is just another secularised institution and it'll go nowhere. That's Robert Somebody else says it was lovely to listen to Bishop Michael Bruter uh, on the programme. No preaching uh, involved in that. Uh, and uh, they were uh, delighted to hear uh, the Bishop on housing. Paddy says Martin Markey of uh, the Hardware Association was making a lot of sense on the programme earlier on and what he was saying. And maybe if people like him who work in the industry were brought around the table to discuss the crisis, then maybe, just maybe, we might start making strides forward in tackling the growing crisis. The problem we 
have at the moment is that there's an awful lot of talking about what needs to be done but very little action is being taken. Michael says that e-scooters shouldn't be allowed on footpaths at all. He was nearly knocked off his feet the other day by a youngster, a child no more than 12 years of age on one of these contraptions and he says he was walking on Emmett Street in Trim at the time. This thing came up behind him with virtually no sound, scared the living daylights out of him and he's still not the better of it today. Uh, Ban them off the footpaths and leave pedestrians to walk safely, says Michael. Well, thanks for saying it on our programme and thanks for making contact. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. That's all we've time for for today. That's our programme. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.